And having a self-awareness that we have made all this stuff up, but that it's still really important made up stuff. And that there is something real and true and meaningful about it. And how do you balance this realization of something like ritual being this human construct, but something that also is deeply meaningful and deeply important? You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are Rachel Jackson, Rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation, Hendersonville, North Carolina. And the first fun thing that I'm going to do when all restrictions are lifted is probably get on a plane and go to Colorado with my family to see our extended family. Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University, and the first activity I will do is plan a nice day at the beach with all my friends. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and the first fun thing that I would love to do when all of the restrictions are lifted is to get brunch at Tomcat Cafe. Ugh. And hopefully my sense of taste will be back by then. Mm. Still gone, huh? Still gone. Month and a half. Weird. Weird. That is weird. Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte. I think the first thing that I will do when all restrictions are lifted is to take my wife out on a really fun and exciting date. That's so wholesome. I, I miss our date nights. I told her that last night. So I'm going to, we're going to go on a date. You know, actually what I was thinking, um, before all of this happened and after the new year and when just coming down off of the Christmas high and just the stress of it all of doing Christmas as a clergy person, that what I really wanted to do was to get a bunch of people together and to go to a bar and to drink and to sing karaoke and just like drink enough that you don't care about how you sound and then just just go at it at that microphone and now thinking about about that like it is going to be a while until karaoke can come back because singing is a really great way to spread the virus and sharing microphones is like sharing toothbrushes when it comes to airborne viruses and that that actually kind of makes me a little sad because that singing karaoke is like a really important secular ritual for me Um, congregational singing in church is really nice and fun um and it, it it's it's deeply sacred and spiritual and whatnot but there is something about when you stand in front of a group of people with a microphone and you sing a song and nobody expects you to be all that good and you can just belt it out and it's some song that you know somebody dared you to sing and so you're up there in front of people singing a backstreet boy song or something and there is just something so cathartic about letting go of your inhibitions and just letting it out and what what is your go-to karaoke song zach my go-to karaoke song um probably thunder road bruce springsteen hmm. any bruce Spring- i mean i'm from jersey so when it comes to like <laughs> karaoke it's it's springsteen or bon jovi and uh though uh, ccr is a good choice too because um we have the same vocal range. And so I can hit Bad Moon Rising pretty well. Uh, it's been a long time since I've done karaoke, but the song I remember doing in the at least once was uh, Strokin' by Clarence Carter. <laughs> this was a question. This was a whole question. Yep, exactly. <laughs> did I bring that up? Yeah, you did. Yes, that I did, was your song. I? No, yes. Right. Yeah. I loved singing that song. <laughs> 
I thought I brought it up before. Yeah. Well, I and it clearly I, had a lasting impression on me. So I say this <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, we we, we did we, that when we did that way back in October when we were talking about prayer, actually. Huh. Oh yeah. Yeah, what amazing memory you have. And I talked about Clarence Carter. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I bring this up because last yeah. week we talked about ritual. <laughs> I wanted to get us thinking about our spiritual rituals that we're trying to translate into the digital world. And we had planned to use that as a springboard to jump off into... Um, a conversation about ritual in general and what even it is what we're talking about and whether rituals can be invented or if they have to develop naturally and we never got to it <laughs> we got we got talking about other things and um, poor Kendra had all of this research and tried to get in a bit at the at the end and it was super insightful, and we thought we can't go to what we were going to talk about next before digging deeper into ritual itself. And so I wanted to, we wanted to take some time here to talk about uh, what it is when we're talking about ritual, um, maybe some of the neuroscience behind the sorts of feelings that rituals can evoke, and maybe a couple of the specific rituals that we've picked up along the way that have been helpful in these times. So um, not to put you on the spot, but uh, Kendra, what, what's, what's a ritual? <laughs> well, let me tell you, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> Webster's uh, Dictionary defines a ritual <laughs> as, no. Yeah, I, uh, I think this is um, just a really important question to put out there given what we have been talking about. And so I think it would be really neat to hear what everyone's conception of a ritual is, but I am happy to kick off that conversation because every time that I think about ritual, I always think about one of my favorite classes of all time that I took um, as a master's student with one of the professors at the Boston University Religion Department. His name is Adam Seligman. And uh, he taught this class called Symbol, Myth, and Rite. And the first day of class, he would walk in and he would dump all this junk onto a desk. And he would ask for two volunteers and one at a time, those two people would go up to the desk of junk and he would just tell them, organize it. And everyone in the class would, you know, be like confused and looking around. And I remember at the time I was like, oh, there's a trick in here somewhere and I'm going to know the answer and get it right. And this is going to be great. Um, and so I watched this person like sort through a bunch of spare change and gum wrappers and safety pins and rocks and just like random junk. And after a couple minutes, uh, Adam Seligman would say, okay, stop. Now, like talk us through your organizational scheme, basically. Hmm. And so maybe the person had decided to have uh, one category of junk that is money. And then another category of junk that is uh, desk supplies. So you've got your sticky notes and your safety pins or paper clips or whatever. And another set of junk that's food. There's like a candy bar or like a piece of gum or something. And so then Adam would mix all the junk up on the desk again. That student would go sit down and another student would come up. And this time the student would finish organizing the junk and you would see a pile of red objects and a pile of uh, blue objects or maybe a pile of metal objects, um, which mixes the money and the desk supplies because now you have coins and the paper clips. And so after everyone is sort of, you know, their eyes are now 
like widening in understanding mm-hmm. of like what this exercise was meant to do. And the point was to open the class by discussing how categories are uh, central to human life and that we use all sorts of human tools to impose order on the world around us. And one of those things is um, language and how we choose to describe the objects and people around us with categories, but that language and the categories we use are not inherent to the objects and people that we are discussing and that we, through culture and through our societies, uh, have these categories that we impose, but just because the categories are not innate and just because we impose order and categories onto the world, that doesn't make those categories less true or less real for the people living in a given society or culture. And so it was this really interesting balance of just learning about these cultural tools of which ritual is a part that we use to feel meaning and order and uh, a sense of purpose and connectedness with people around us and having a a self-awareness that we have made all this stuff up, but (laughs) that it's still really important made up stuff. And that there is something real and true and meaningful about it. And how do you balance this realization of something like ritual being this human construct, but something that also is deeply meaningful and deeply important to your moral instruction or your sense of relationship with people or your sense of connectedness to the divine or whatever it is. Um, there are these this tension between like real and unreal if those are the categories we can use here. And so I loved this activity. I got to the end of the class, just was like, this is going to be the best class of the semester. And it was actually, I really enjoyed it. But um, so all of that to say, uh, in the text that we were reading that semester, we would have a discussion over and over again about ritual being one of these things that imposes order, just like the categories we learned through language and the organizing junk exercise. And that ritual, it creates this bracketed out space in our lives that uh, creates a world as if it were true. The subjunctive as if worlds. And that was always set in opposition to the sincere mode of thought or the as-is mode of thinking about the world. And so you've got this ritual versus sincerity um, opposition. And they're not always opposed, but for the purpose of clarity, we'll just make them opposed in this conversation. Um, And so we would talk about all kinds of examples about how this works. And one of the um, simple illustrations that I thought was really useful was just thinking of um, like politeness and the way that we use words like please and thank you and how those are their own forms of um, like societal rituals that are very simple and we take them for granted often, but that they do something. You might not be very sincere or you might not feel very kind when you say, to your kid, like, please go clean your room. Uh, You're not actually inviting them to say, no, thank you, mother. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But by saying please, there's something about that word and just like using polite words in any interaction that invites everyone in the conversation to participate in this uh, interaction, in this like reality or this illusion is a strong word, but that's like how uh, Adam would talk about it sometimes. Is this like a collective illusion that we are equals here, that the mother is inviting the child to say, no, thank you, mom. I don't want to clean my room. When actually that's not what, that's not the bottom line. Like the bottom line is that if the kid says, no, I don't want to clean my room. Well, the mom has the power in that relationship. She'll just make the kid go clean the room. Um, But we participate in these rituals that signal something about the world that we want to live in and the way that we want equality and we want respect. And 
this happens in all sorts of rituals. And it's, it's just this really interesting way, I think, to look at like what a ritual does and how it functions as this bracketed out space and that it, it does something different than the way we are having a, a casual conversation with a friend about like what we ate for breakfast. And so I see that as, um, for me, it really reinvigorated my appreciation of rituals because I think I grew up with this mindset for a while that saw ritual as something that could easily be meaningless and um, sort of nonsensical if it if I wasn't doing something that I really believed. But as I've gotten older, I've really come to appreciate how ritual, it's about this action that you're participating in. And it doesn't so much matter, like it de-emphasizes what you're feeling and thinking on the inside. And it signals that by participating in a ritual, the action is what binds you together with people in a time and space. And that it's, it emphasizes action and uh, presence with people and that that creates order. It imposes order on the chaos of what you may feel inside, which can be very conflicted or, um, you know, mean, (laughs) whatever you think of your neighbor. It doesn't matter because as long as you shake hands at the mailbox when you're walking up to your house, it's a a signal of civility um, and these are, uh, that's another like small kind of ritual that we participate in. So th- that's my opening uh thoughts about ritual, but I I wonder how that strikes each of you or if you have anything that's different about the way you conceive of ritual in your own life. I really love that that story of the opening of the classroom Mm -hmm. um, on how to categorize something. And as you were talking about it, um, so in the Jewish tradition, we have the Torah or the Bible. And then we have this other set of books, which I've talked about a few times here, called the Talmud, which is a lot of volumes of categorization. That is its entire purpose. Um, Why can't you, why there's this, it's called shotness. Why can't you wear wool and linen together? Because they're different categories. One comes from, you know, uh, a, a grain kind of thing. Another one comes from a live animal. You can't combine those things. Same thing with kosher. You can't combine something which came from a living animal with something that comes from a dead animal. That's mixing categories. And uh, we, we can't mix categories. That's like the worst thing ever is to mix categories. Um, as a total aside, my son's favorite thing to eat are colorful gummy bears and I got him this giant bag of gummy bears for his sixth birthday and he was like ecstatic and the first thing he did was sort them by color Mm. because (laughs) he is totally my son Um, he didn't eat them no no he had to make sure what they were so um, so back to the Talmud there's this one category that really confused the Talmudic rabbis like really confused them and it's it's difficult for me to say as a woman of the 21st century, but women, adult women, totally like mystified the rabbis. They had no idea what to do with them. In fact, they had so little idea what to do with them. There's a book that's published called Chattel or Person, <laughs> Women in the Time of the Mishnah. <laughs> Because sometimes women are exactly like any other object, and other times women are more like people. <laughs> um, weird. Um, because they were they were so needing to be there because, and part of that was also ritualistic, which which brings me to one other again from a Talmudic, but really from the sacrificial cults of the Bible, of Judaism. What is blood? Blood is either something which contaminates you or blood is something which purifies you, depending how you use it and where it comes from, right? If, if it is a priest being anointed 
And thank God our ordination ceremonies didn't look like this, right? It's just a little bit of blood on each earlobe uh, or being splashed with blood to purify oneself from a particular, you know, special animal, special cow, special sacrifice. But if it's menstrual blood, whoo, got to stay away. I can't touch that. Um, so for me, ritual is not just, not even just the object itself, but what we're doing with it that matters. Um, so I, I, yeah, so those are my couple of thoughts on ritual, um, and categorization. I'll let others talk now. I've got other things to say, but I want to hear from our gentleman too. I can respond yeah. to something Rachel said, if y'all need yes, to Yes, please do. Please, please. Uh, one of the things I'm, I'm thinking of as you're talking about, um, blood as being something that either contaminates or purifies is how important disgust becomes as a, um, an emotion that signals whether or not you are crossing a boundary that should not be crossed uh, or like categorizing something inappropriately um, and how there's like a whole literature on the emotion of disgust that's so interesting when you think about what ritual means and ritual purity um, and how like this Ritual, it's not just something that's intellectual. It's not just something that we think about and write about and read about, but these things become so real for us and so embodied. And we react with these really strong, visceral feelings. And disgust is something you see over and over again when we cross these uh, categorical boundaries that we're not supposed to cross. And that is a good example of um, one, Rachel, is of the blood. We in, we in the church love to play with blood, not literally, but like, I mean, we're drinking blood every month and we're just gleefully just pouring out a cup of grape something and being like, blood of Christ, drink it up. <laughs> and like most of our hymns, I have such a hard time with hymns, you know, like, oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow, no other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? It's like- That's some karaoke songs right there. Real, <laughs> right, and that's my, uh, that's my that's tent pretty, revival voice right there. Uh, <laughs> pretty good, though. That's very good. <laughs> Next time, I just want you to strum that guitar while you're singing it. Mm. I can get, I can get a lighter. I look around. I don't have a guitar with me. I'm sorry. I have a very out of Ooh, tune. Needs to be tuned real yeah, bad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't play guitar, and even I knew that. Um, no, but and I, I feel such disgust a lot of times when I'm doing that, and I, I wonder if there's something almost, I don't know, intentional about that. This isn't a part of ritual that it has to be something that is just so far out of the norm that it jolts your brain into saying, well, this is different. This isn't a normal thing, which is like I mentioned before with the really intricate mating rituals of butterflies and whatnot, that it has to be so different from the norm that it's you're not confusing just a butterfly who's eating or a leaf or something like that. And so like, like I remember seeing the passion of the Christ uh, in, in movie theaters. Any of you see this? I've seen oh, it once. Yeah. Nope, you, nope. Most, most definitely did not. The Jews did are not, not presented see that. super well by <laughs> Mel Gibson. Weird. An anti-Semitic person not presenting Jews well during the lifetime of Christ? I, I don't can't know imagine. what you're talking about. Right? Such sarcasm there. <laughs> but it was a disgusting movie. I mean, that it starts with, I mean, it's called The Passion of the Christ. It's just the entire thing is just Jesus getting killed for like hours. And it's just bloody and I'm just I'm just throwing this one out there. For people that are not enmeshed in Christianity in those ways, we don't actually know what the passion is. Like that's that's a that's a jargon term for people on the know. And so I had no idea what the I thought the passion of the Christ was just like being passionate for God. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah. Here's a whole nother perspective. Yeah. Jesus is just really talking about what he loves for a couple hours. Like pretty much comes up well, like uh this is my favorite kind of bread, guys. I am so excited about this bakery in Nazareth. It is the best. It's really quite good. The way that they balance everything in their baking process is really well done. 
So yeah. maybe that's just me. Oh, we love that, right? I mean, how many, I mean, in, in Protestant churches, we have empty crosses everywhere. But in Catholic churches, their crosses are full. They got Jesus on there and he's dripping and he's got the crown of thorns, even though that, you know, probably didn't, a different part of the story and whatnot. But like, we just love the disgust and the blood and the gore. And I don't. I say we. I mean that as the church. I don't like it at all. I, I think like that movie was tough to watch. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to be like, guys, I had one really bad day, and you just keep on reminding me about this. Crosses everywhere. I mean, <sighs> can we talk about some of the other things I did? Yeah, right? I, I definitely saw that movie uh, when I was. I don't know how old I was, but I was young and traumatized. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a, a huge group of people from our church that went and saw it together. And I just remember like sobbing myself to sleep that night because it was a lot. But it was just like all of the the vivid gore of that film is intentional to elicit that kind of response. Uh, so, And I wonder if they he did it in Aramaic and Latin because that makes it more inaccessible and it will, well it, it it makes it authentic sure but like it also adds one more layer of disconnection to the to the story so Jesus doesn't have a british accent and so he's he's a bit more inaccessible he's like the old latin mass where it feels more holy and it feels more grand and i don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> You were gonna say Ian. You were gonna. So I watched it once, not in the theater. I we I bought it. It was soon after Ann and I got married, and we moved to Charlottesville, started my PhD program. So it was either two thousand four or two thousand five, and I watched it. And she didn't with me, but I and I was in a place where I was not very strong in my faith or not on any kind of spiritual journey at all, and very antagonistic towards religion, actually. And I cried through the entire movie. Like the entire time, I was I just was holding it back, ready to just sob. Um, and I don't mind violent movies, but it was just the that part was really challenging. But you know, it's funny what you mentioned earlier, Rachel, when you talked about you know those of us not in the Christian community don't understand you know, when you say passion what that really means. I remember many stories coming out after it was done of some people who are members of the Christian community saying that what they didn't like about one of the criticisms they had is that it didn't focus on after the resurrection and like the things that happened after the resurrection. And they had to be reminded that's not the passion time frame. Like that's not, the passion does not cover that time frame. So I think too, that it showed that a lot of people may not really understand what that means. And I would also so. just add that like we're talking a lot about the gore and blood in the passion of the Christ, but I think that's a different, uh, a different use of gore and blood than like ritual disgust. Uh, yes, that that I referenced earlier, and I think that the film is just really just trying touche. Like it is trying to elicit a strong emotional response, basically regardless of who you are. <laughs> And that's really different. Thank you for bringing us back to that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, still stuck in the movie series. (laughs) Hi, this is Rabbi Jeff Middleman, founding director of Sinai and Synapses. Down the Wormhole came out of our Interfaith Fellowship, but Sinai and Synapses also has projects directed towards Judaism and science. We have an open application for our project, Scientists in Synagogues, which would give your community $3,600 to do work on Judaism and science. The deadline is July 23rd, and you can see it at sinaiandsynapses.org. Thanks very much. So with ritual, um, I'm sorry, I actually, I I heard the words, but I'm now blanking on who said it. I'm sorry. can we, can we like, I'm sure that there's a whole nother term for like, um, pandemic brain or something. Um, mm, <laughs> there must, there, I mean, there was pregnancy brain is totally, Absolutely. Real. um, totally real. So maybe there's just pandemic brain. 
I don't mean to make light of it. I just forgot who right. said this, and we only had this conversation like six <laughs> minutes ago. Um, <laughs> well, but I don't want it to be like I have the virus, right? Which would be the COVID piece. Anyway, um, <laughs> I know what you're saying. I think I've had a little bit of that. Thank you. Yeah. So one of y'all just said about ritual, I think it might have been Zach, had to be a little bit different than. Yes, that was me. Right. Woo. Um, and I, I don't know if I f- firmly agree with that. I think for, at least in Judaism, a lot of the rituals that I know of and participate in take something which we regularly do anyway and add a spiritual side to it. So for example, washing of the hands. There's this ritual that you wash your hands before you eat, not in terms of like a CDC, you know, 20 second scrub sing a song, but in a sense of take the water, take a cup. And of course, where there is potential for marketing and merchandising, of course, there's a special cup if you want it, but it really can be any cup. Um, And you splash it, you know, a splash on the left, splash on the right. It's three times on each side. And some people do left, 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 right, right, right. And some people do left, right, left, right, left, right. But that's a washing of the hands, which we do anyway. This was not meant to be a hygienic washing, which is why no soap and stuff. But it's it's something similar, right, that, that we just wash our hands. We, um, another, another potential ritual is that we say a blessing over, or we say we light candles, right, for on Friday nights and on Saturday night, we light a different candle, Bed Bath and Beyond has like an entire store. I mean, there's there's a whole stores of scented candles, right? Lighting candles, or 150 years ago, that's all you had for elect like there wasn't electricity, so you had to light a candle in order to actually see things. So just, but how do you take it from lighting a candle to I'm now lighting this candle because it is the bringing in of the Sabbath, or because it's the going out of the Sabbath. Um, so I actually see ritual as taking something which is mundane and elevating it to that which is holy because it's already familiar and we're saying, ah, I know this. I am comfortable with it. Now let me imbue it with something So new. it's like adding symbolism to it. It's not just the lighting of the candle, right? Like you were saying, you light a candle, but now if you light a candle during a particular part of a service or experience that while it's you could unpack that to say, oh, I just lit a candle, but you add some sort of symbolism to it to make it more meaningful? Yes, and I, I heard yeah. you, Zach. Um, let me just respond to Ian, too. Part of that is, yes, you add the symbolism. And in you know older, non-modern Judaism, there was this idea, and in some, in some cases, Orthodoxy Judaism, there's this belief that by saying the blessing— while doing the action or, um, you know, say the blessing and then do the action, it actually changes what is happening. That by lighting the candles, you have now actually brought in the Sabbath. Okay. That without having lit the candles, the sa- it would just be Friday night. It wouldn't be the okay. Sabbath. So that there's, a, that there's a, a cosmic change and a cosmic shift by our actions. Now that may or may not work for some people theologically, and I'm not. That's not what I'm. You know, that's not what we're talking about today. Um, but from a ritualistic standpoint, that it's not just a symbol. Okay. I'm. Uh, I want to explain a little bit what I mean when I say that, and I want to, if I can, read a, a little short paragraph from Andrew Newberg's book, "Why God Won't Go Away: Brain Science and the Biology of Belief." Um, this is he and a couple of his colleagues. They're uh, neurotheologians. Um, I suppose, in the University of Pennsylvania, uh, doing a lot of uh, neurological studies on spirituality and ritual and uh, all of that. So he writes in this book, uh, rituals often incorporate specific marked actions, a slow bow, a prostration, a deliberately excursive movement of the hands and arms, or any other action that by its form or meaning, draws attention to itself as being different from the ordinary practical movements. The oddness of this gesture attracts the attention of the watchdog-like amygdala. 
Although the amygdala is looking for signs and opportunities in danger, inexplicable movements such as the marked actions of human ritual might easily capture and hold its attention for longer than usual periods of time. If stimulation of the amygdala lasts long enough, the animal often responds with fear, cringing, and withdrawal. It's possible that during ceremonial ritual, marked actions would cause a sustained focus of the amygdala, resulting in a mild fear or arousal response, just as occurred in the animals whose amygdalas were electrically stimulated. Blended with the blissful calm of the hyperquiescent state, this arousal might be experienced as religious awe. And so one of the things that, that he and his colleagues uh, talk a lot about is this state of religious awe, this unitive consciousness, as they call it. I think, is it Durkheim that calls this a collective effervescence? Um, which that is, is definitely Durkheimian language. A fantastic <laughs> phrase. So this, this feeling that many of us get, whether it be in a worship service or in a time of prayer or meditation or a Bruce Springsteen concert, where you just feel this overwhelming uh, unitive connection to others and to the universe and a loss of self. And they have found that this can be achieved neurologically one of two ways. One way, and basically what you're trying to do is bypass the parts of your brain that are in charge of your spatial awareness. So to lose awareness of where you end and where others begin. And so some of the ways that you can do that are by overloading the uh, hippocampus, I, I think is uh, hypothalamus, sorry. So your, your autonomic system, the part of your brain that just does what it does, it has, has the fight or flight response, right? It, it does mm -hmm. the, um, the arousal response when there's danger or... Uh, sorry. <laughs> so there's the arousal response when there's danger or something else like that that gets your blood pumping and it gets you moving and it gets you're hyper aware and then there's the quiescent response that brings you back down to earth when the threat has passed and you can overstimulate one or the other and we see this in ritual all the time it peep there's you know like the frantic dancing or uh in my experience growing up in with the pentecostals we would have the same chorus over and over and over again of some song, and we would be invited to like dance and jump and run, and this rhythmic repetition that overloads the arousal system, and then the hypothalamus goes, whoa, 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 things are going nuts. We got to start conserving energy, and we got to start shutting parts of the brain down. And one of the first places it shuts down is that spatial awareness part. And so then with that shut down, your brain starts sending signals back from the front to the back to the front to the back to the front to the back in this feedback loop and you lose your sense of self and you feel a sense of connectivity and that combined with the ritual which has to have added meaning to it they found that you can't just do this it has to have some meaning to it as well evokes this feeling of of uh, spiritual awe and likewise if you overload the quiescent system through meditation through um, calming exercises. They found that olfactory senses, you know, so smells can, can really assist in this. This is why I love the sensory deprivation tank so much and why this helps me to feel this unitive consciousness because it goes from like, I can feel things to I can feel nothing. And so my quiescent system goes into overdrive and then starts to shut down parts of my brain. And then that sort of consciousness, this unitive consciousness, is this sort of uh, spiritual uh, brain activity. Now, one of the things that's important <laughs> when I say this is if you can identify the parts of the brain that are present during religious experiences, that does not mean that the religious experiences are not valid or that the, any spiritual connection to a deity that a person is feeling is not valid either. Because, you know, you can you can isolate the parts of the brain that are lighting up while eating a cherry pie. And that doesn't explain away the cherry pie. <laughs> you know, the, there is still a stimulus. And, or it's right. deliciousness. Or it's, it's, you know, the meaning associated with eating your grandmother's cherry pie. Um, so just the mechanics of it are one thing. And then the meaning we apply to it is uh, another thing.
I think what's really interesting about the kind of experience inside of ritual that Zach is describing and the way that I uh, have been trying to describe it is that in Zach's explanation, there's this match between uh, like what's happening inside your body and maybe your expectations of the format, like the the ritual format that you are in, whether that's inside uh, a church building singing with people or, you know, whatever it is you're doing. There, but there's this um, match between the inside and the outside. And I, I think that's definitely one way that people can experience ritual. But I think what's really interesting about ritual is that you don't, you can't expect that to happen all the time. And in the 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 language that I used earlier of the like subjunctive as if mode of thought uh, versus the sincere as is mode of thought, I think what Zach is describing is this as is, like there's a sincerity in this experience where you're feeling all of these, like you're feeling it in your emotions and your brain is lighting up in a certain way and it it matches what you believe theologically maybe. And that's all coinciding neatly with the ritual uh, that you are participating in. But I think there's also, uh, to go back to Rachel, when you were describing, um, I think it was lighting the candle to bring the Sabbath in. And you you made an offhanded comment of like, well, and maybe that doesn't match what some people would think theologically. And I think that is exactly the uh, subjunctive piece of ritual, the as if. It's that people who don't believe that there is a cosmic shift when you light the candle to bring the Sabbath in, it doesn't really matter in this understanding of ritual that I'm talking about, um, but you do it anyway because you're part of a community and participating in the lighting of the candle is not about trying to match your inside uh, sincere beliefs to the outside rituals of your community. It's about um, participating, like bringing in this reality of the, the Sabbath candle in a sense that it's this bracketed out space in time where you have lit the candle and you're doing this with other people and you're going to participate as if it's true and as if it's real. And that has its own kind of meaning. And it doesn't really matter if you're not getting the, these like tingling sensations or, you know, whatever uh, other kind of internal uh, neurological, like religious experience. Um, and I think that's a really important distinction because they're both valid kinds of ritual participation and religious experiences. But I think you can see how, I think in the, the kind of upbringing that like Zach and I have had, for example, there is a lot of expectation to have this uh, religious experience when you participate in religious rituals. And if you don't have the tingling sensations and if you don't have this um sense of being connected to the divine, well, there's probably something wrong with you. And I think this is something that gets taught in some traditions that can make people feel a disconnect with their community and is, I think, unhelpful in like building community sometimes, but it's really just a, a different, really like the bottom line is that it's just a different expectation of what should happen in a ritual. And, you know, I, I guess there's not like one right or wrong way to do it. Like, I'm just trying to describe like how these expectations uh, fit different kinds of communities. But the implications are really different if you expect someone to feel what they are doing versus you just expect someone to do what they're supposed to do. Interesting. So that's interesting to me. I got really good at faking it in my upbringing of, uh, cause the, 
one of the doctrines of most of the Pentecostal charismatic movement, at least the Assemblies of God where I was, is that the initial sign of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is that a person speaks in tongues. Now, they, they might never do it again, but the very first time that they are filled with the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues. And I never did. And I just assumed that that must mean that I, you know, the Holy Spirit didn't really care much for me. And I, so I got good at faking it so that nobody knew, <laughs> right? My deep, dark secrets. And, you know, had these almost, almost subjunctive worship series uh, experiences where I hoped that but just by going through the actions, I would feel the thing. And I never did really feel it. Um, maybe somewhat. And, and now that I'm looking at it from a neurological perspective, I could see myself in some of the really repetitive bits, um, feeling that sort of unitive connection. Um, but I don't think it ever meant it didn't have the meaning to me because it was all couched in trying to fit in more so than having an actual experience. I, I wanted people to think that I was spiritual like everyone else and that I had it together like everyone else. And nobody could know that I was didn't actually feel the things that I was pretending to feel. It's hard to live like that. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds near impossible. Which is why you can imagine how excited I was when I became an adult and learned about all this subjunctive as if ritual. <laughs> There's something kind of liberating about that for people like me and Zach who are like, oh, you don't have to be feeling what everyone says you're supposed to feel all the time. Just do it. Be part of the community. <laughs> oh, man. I remember one time where the pastor uh, was was preying on people and was was pushing on my head and was saying don't fight the holy spirit don't fight the holy spirit like trying to get me to fall over and do that that whole um dog and pony show and i was thinking in my head like i'm not fighting the holy spirit i'm fighting you man <laughs> <laughs> and then i realized like if i just fall over i get to lay down and for the rest of chapel and so i just i just did and just laid down for a while and <sighs> it's funny i can admit this now Wow. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. fascinating. <laughs> like, um, I, I'm just, I'm sitting here a little bit. I'm, I'm sitting here just a little bit like. Um, Sounds controlling. Mouthy, like that these are. Ritual. It ritual used awful. as a, a form of control. And I don't think it's meant maliciously for, by most people. I think that it is controlling but not in like a maniacal uh, evil genius twisting your curly mustache kind of a way. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I think at its best, all ritual is controlling, but it's a collective control. Like you, ritual is something that you participate in. And so there's like a collective, like everyone is participating in this thing together. And once, you're inside of that bracketed space of ritual. You abide by the ritual rules. And whenever anybody breaks those rules, you've broken the bracketed space of the ritual. Or, um, you know, insert other descriptor of how you think of ritual, it, whether that's like illusion or, you know, this like tool of connection, this like creation of the world you want to live in. But everyone has to participate together because you can't have people inside of the ritual space doing whatever they want um, <laughs> because that's this like sincere mode of thought that we've been talking about. I wonder, it's okay. You know, I was thinking about earlier ritual versus habit, right? And I know, you know, I just started wondering what is the difference? And there is a difference. I looked it up. Um, habit is something done repeatedly for the purpose of performing the action itself. And a ritual is something done repeatedly with a purpose outside of the action itself. So the habit is for the, to do the action. The ritual is to, is outside of the action, but I feel like habits can turn into ritual 
right? Yeah, it's like washing your hands every day to actually make them clean yeah. versus washing your hands regularly in this sort of symbolic way that Rachel was talking about earlier. You had brought up that example. And yeah, like we we do a lot of uh, mundane actions in many types of ways. And some of our mundane actions are just to like fulfill the purpose of the action, like washing your hands or you know, brushing your teeth, but some of those things in the right, in the right bracketed space uh, with, you know, the right layer of symbolism or whatever function, they become something else. Right. So I'm curious then if a way to potent for things to change from a habit to a ritual, you know, if that's what someone wanted would be a, you know, practice like mindfulness. And I was about to ask you about this in particular because you've been using Headspace, the app, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a, a mindfulness app that uses uh, Meditation. Game, gamification, <laughs> like, right. like Duolingo, to uh, get you to form a habit of mindfulness. Uh, well, so, a habit of meditating. Right. So it seems like it's, learning it's the distinction using, between the two. It's using some of the addictive um, mm -hmm. strategies of of like Candy Crush in order to get you to develop a ritual. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your well, experience. Well, in order to I would say it's more in order to get you to develop a habit. Okay. Not necessarily a ritual. I don't feel like the at least from my experiences with Headspace, that the goal has not necessarily been for me to develop some sort of ritual. Because even, you know, there are times in some of the uh, things I've listened to, it talks about that the goal is not necessarily to bring in the spirituality or, you know, typically what's associated with meditation of, you know, Eastern religions. Um, that's not necessarily his goal. His goal is to help people develop the habit of meditation to, and to see the power of it, either scientifically or also spiritually, right? Mm. I am trying to take it a little bit further to not just have it be my normal 10-minute, 10, 10-15-minute 10, routine in the morning, so my habit to applying it mindfully throughout the day. Like, how can this impact all aspects of my life? in a positive way. So I think that's how it's, it's starting to become a ritual for me because I see a way of connecting with everything around me in a better way. And also to, uh, you know, I see it as that the spiritual journey that I'm on, that it's connecting me to that as well. It's still hard for me to explain that aspect, but I feel like, I think one of the things that really got me into it was actually, and uh, Mark Bloom and I were talking about this a few weeks ago, was that two weeks while I was at the seminary, at Virginia Theological Seminary in November. So I had started the meditation practice through the um, Headspace app prior to that and had gotten about two weeks in. And then I uh, get up to the seminary and I started going to the morning um, worship service, morning prayer service. And that became more like a mindfulness approach for me, a meditative experience. So I stopped listening to the app. I noticed that. And then I, so I lost that habit. Right. And it, it took a while for me to realize that. And it wasn't until maybe sometime in, in February, when I started realizing that a time of high productivity and just feeling more relaxed and calm was while I was at the seminary. And I started realizing that it was trying, I felt a very strong spiritual connection to where I was, but also I was feeling like that, that experience was my approach to mindfulness that I didn't have anymore because I wasn't either there or using the Headspace app or wasn't meditating. So I started the meditation practice again, like right around the time of the pandemic, maybe a week before the pandemic started. And, you know, I think Anne can attest that it has drastically changed how I approach everything and has definitely turned into a ritual for me. And it's, you know, all areas. I've read a lot about mindfulness since then. I mean, just I'm, I've been really trying to embrace it because 
originally I had the false idea that it was new agey um, East or Eastern religion, spirituality type stuff, the things I just wasn't interested in. But then when I got that out of my head pretty quickly of realizing that it really isn't all new agey type stuff and nothing, not that there's anything wrong about new agey, just that I didn't want all of the bells and whistles that sometimes people associate with it of that. I just felt like, there's more to it. And so when I was able to get that bias out of my head and realize that one, it's not based around that type of approach that there is a lot of science to back it up. And two, so what if it is <laughs> right? So there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's not an approach that I take, but it's an, I have to admit it's an approach that I, even though it's not the way I come to my, my time of meditation and my readings about mindfulness, I don't, shun it now if i see it and it and experience it through a podcast or a book i'm reading um or even just the thought that i'm having while meditating i actually embrace that now and it's not something that maybe i, I will fully get into but i see the value of it to others right so i feel like i've been able to overcome that bias and it has changed everything i think that's great ian that you're able to i mean uh, one thing that we can all aspire to is mm -hmm. overcoming our biases, you know, and then allowing allowing us to try them, right? Allowing us to try something um, by by overcoming those. So I think that's wonderful. One of the differences I hear in what you're talking about, what uh, what Kendra is also saying, mm -hmm. was a communal aspect, right? How we can have um, so can it can it you know. Um, not hypothetical, a rhetorical question of can it be ritual if it's by yourself? Or is it just an, is it a symbolic habit? Is it a routine, right? Where, where is that line? And where does community fit in that line? And, and this brings me to the, the conversation that we were having last week and that many of us are looking at, right? Where we have those communal pieces, but without all of the, mm, um, without all of the givens that we had meeting in a particular sanctuary. Again, religious rituals or not religious mm -hmm. rituals, right? Meeting at the gym, meeting in the coffee shop, meet, right? One of the things that Zach said last time was about going to Panera and where that was a ritual of some sort because of the people there. So um, how we then take these concepts of ritual, if they are communal, how we then create how we go from habit or routine to imbuing it with so, this symbolism. I think that, uh, so I can only, obviously only speak about my personal experiences during the time of the pandemic, but I have found that because when I finally realized that the thing I felt like I was missing the most was the feeling I had while at the seminary of having that ritual and missing the, those rituals from you know our, my Sunday services at my church was that you know I felt like I was getting into a meditative state while there in Virginia, and so I wanted th to get back to that. And now I apply the things that I've learned through my daily meditation to, like for example, the Tuesday Compline services I lead for my church on Facebook. You know, so it's I. And what I find interesting is that while yes, I've lost rituals by you know going to church and 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 other rituals too, I've gained rituals that I would have never gained because I realized that leading even that small service has become something that I highly value and something that I've started thinking, will I be able to continue doing that when we are able to go back to normal services again? Right. And thankfully sounds like if it's not that particular thing that there will be other things we do because i think what i was saying last week is that one of the things that i've really noticed is that it's allowing me to recognize that i can feel the same way that my religious experiences the same feeling i get from when i'm at church i can feel that elsewhere it doesn't have to be just at that one place and so i've had to figure out well how can i get those feelings without being able to be in that space Right. So I, I, I think that is a, while there are negatives associated with the pandemic and the things that we're dealing with, clearly there are some, some silver linings too, of recognizing that I would have never had that if we were not in this situation. And I would not have the habit of daily meditation and learning how to apply 
this daily habit into other aspects of my life to make it a ritual. Just as a as a yes. bit of an aside to your question, um, <laughs> Rachel, as to whether or not rituals must be communal or um, can can still be ritual alone. There was a saint in the fifth early fifth century uh, in near modern day Aleppo who was named Saint Simeon, and he was one of the uh, one of those early Christians who liked to be alone and to practice personal meditation and asceticism and in which was in vogue in those days and was really frustrated because every time he found a secluded place, somebody would come and find him and would ask for prayer and for guidance and for teaching because he's so wise and so spiritual and he's just trying to get his alone prayer time on and people keep bothering him. And so eventually he found <laughs> an old pillar from uh, like a ruins from an old temple and he climbed up the pillar which was about 10 feet tall and he lived on a platform on top of the pillar and then I, later on this he, guy. 37 like, what, years 10 years or something he found another I pillar was which was about 50 feet tall <laughs> higher so higher farther right. away from people so they yeah. couldn't yell at him and be like can you pray for me i, I have my foot hurts or whatever it is <laughs> and he, children from the town used to climb up the pole and bring him food which he didn't eat much and he had a bucket up there for his uh you know uh-huh yes for things for to things come to come down, down the the pillar that's nice and he just sought for so long to just do his rituals alone and in peace. And while connected to a tradition, a larger Christian tradition, he didn't make this thing up on his own, but the ritual he practiced had to be alone. And man, poor guy, he just mm -hmm. wanted to live on a pole. And... <laughs> yeah, I... So Kendra, take us home. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I, that's a great story because it raises an additional question uh, of like, are you really doing ritual alone, even if you're alone? <laughs> I think to put it succinctly is like at the heart of that story. Um, like we learn rituals from other people and mm -hmm. even participating in activities that we do physically alone. Uh, we're still building on something that was passed down to us. And I also, in just thinking about this uh, really good question of Rachel's about ritual and um, what it means, like, can you do that alone? Uh, if you do something alone, can it be ritual? I think it's important to note that what we've been talking about today has mostly centered around the collective nature of ritual, but it's important to just point out that there are dozens and dozens of other really interesting and prominent like theories about what ritual means. And so maybe you really love the subjunctive, sincere uh, modes of thought that I've spent most of, of today trying to push. <laughs> um, or maybe you really love Emile Durkheim's collective effervescence um, which I think is one of the more communal ideas of ritual that requires a group of people that have this bubbling up of emotion um, after participating in something together. And it is the nature of being together in community that creates what he calls this collective effervescence. And it, it can sound like big and jargony, but it's really just like to define it. it yeah, if if you can't, if you're not compelled by just the imagery of that word, um, just think of it as this extra layer of emotion and feeling and connectedness. It's just a little bit messy, but it's something that only happens when you're with other people. And so, again, a very communal way of thinking about ritual, but it doesn't have to be that way. And um, I just think like the answer to the question that Rachel posed is going to help us determine the boundaries of our ritual bucket and what we can put inside of it. So hmm. we can fight about that forever. I love that. What's in your ritual bucket? <laughs> like that. Well, thank you. That was a yeah. 
That was a good way to bring it home. This has been episode 39 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. Big thanks to all our supporters on patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast and all you who are still listening to podcasts and sharing with your friends, even without a regular daily commute. This past week, we launched a new Facebook group so you can keep having these kinds of conversations throughout the week and hopefully building some new and interesting connections between all of you as well. You can just search Facebook for Down the Wormhole Conversations and join the fun. Next week, we are joined by the Reverend Dr. Ruth Shaver as we get into the nitty-gritty of digital education, the bane of teachers and professors everywhere. It looks like online education is kind of here to stay. So what new adventures for learning does this pandemic offer us, and in what ways are we just trying to cram our old beloved models into Zoom calls and discussion boards? But hey, speaking of, remember, don't forget to join that new Down the Wormhole Facebook group. Just do it. Be part of the community. 